1: and welcome to another episode of Reconsider, where we don't do the thinking for you. Of course, part of the Agora Podcast Network. Now, today, I have a repeat guest, Jacob Shapiro. Eric actually won't be joining us today. He's in the middle of a cross-country move on top of managing his startup. So he's a little tied up, and Jacob was willing to come back on the show. Jacob, how's it going?
2: I'm glad I didn't embarrass myself so much the first time that you felt good about having me back, Sandra.
1: It's important to not embarrass yourself in public. Actually, it doesn't matter. You, you just, you just got to own it, right?
2: Yeah, I guess so. That's, that sounds like a good philosophy. To
1: <laughs> well, we've done this sort of show before in the past, and so serial listeners will be used to it. We're going to do a sort of around-the-world, just general overview of what's going on. And this stems from, in part... You know, there's everything going on with the elections in the U.S. and everything in the world sort of feeds in in one way or another to domestic U.S. politics. And Jacob is also doing a lot of really high-level global order sort of thinking right now and, and research in that effect. So maybe we can just start with sort of the 10-year perspective, Jacob. What what are some of the big issues going to be? And then we'll kind of dive down from there. But what's going to be different in the next 10 or 20 years from the last 20 years.
2: Yeah, I guess that's sort of a code word for saying that we didn't know exactly what, what we wanted to talk about. So let's just talk about everything. <laughs> uh, yeah, I've, I'm working on this report right now. And I'm trying to figure out what I think the most important political forces are going to be in the next 10 years. And I guess before I would even kind of start to pick your brain and talk about some of the things that I've been thinking about, I'll say that I've, I've sort of had a mini crisis of confidence in general with the field of forecasting in general. And Xander, I'm sure you've kind of felt this stuff too. And I sort of went on a, a binge reading spree of Philip Tetlock, who wrote a book called Super Forecaster: and Expert Political Judgment, both of which I highly recommend to anybody who's listening to the podcast. And, you know, I worked for George Friedman for a long time, first at Geopolitical Futures, then at Stratford before that. So the idea of political forecasting has sort of been in my life now for over a decade. But I think that in some ways, people distrust forecasting because people who are in this field often over-advertise what you can actually actually predict. I've been playing around a lot with this idea that to, to try and forecasting means you're basically trying to say all this stuff that is dynamic, that is constantly evolving, we have to stop all that and sort of give a picture of now and then project out into the future. And I've been struggling with, I think it's an amazing exercise to do to stop and look at everything that's going on now and project forward. But it's a mistake to think that the things that you're going to predict today could even be the same tomorrow. Because as we've just seen in the last couple of months, there's no way of predicting that a coronavirus is going to come out of nowhere in China and completely reshape potentially the global economy and global supply chains and all these other things. You have no way of knowing if there's going to be you know, crisis of confidence in a stock market or in an asset class and what that's going to do or whether there's going to be a blunder in Iran where somebody looks at something on a radar and thinks it's a missile, but it turns out to be a civilian plane. All those things kind of affect things. So I wonder, Xander, we haven't talked about this in a while. How do, how do you feel about forecasting in general? Do you feel better about it or have you been having some of these, these uh, internal struggles that I have? Uh,
1: eternal struggles, certainly. And I... I mean, I, I really have gone through a similar process as you have for similar reasons. We work together and we kind of came from this background of you know, geopolitical forecasting being this deterministic thing. And I, I certainly, I would count myself as a, as a realist. And I know you and I sort of disagree a little bit about what that term means, but I do think that there are structural forces that can You know, maybe carve out the banks of the river, but the way that the water flows really is unpredictable and there's a lot of uncertainty. And coming to grips with what you can't know is one, challenging and two, necessary, I think, if you're going to be in this business. And I, I agree that calling it a forecasting business is probably something we should move away from because there is so much uncertainty that the best you can do, in my opinion, is look at what the main forces are, what the big dynamics are and that that is something i think that is observable and say okay well if you observe scenario a you know that's probably or if you observe outcome a that might be an indication that scenario 1 is happening and you can sort of start to signpost and figure out which way you're heading as new data comes in but there is far more uncertainty in these complex systems that are human interactions, um, interactions between human societies. And the strict determinism that I think you and I have both approached this topic in the past is incomplete. And there has to be a better way to capture what you can't know as you go on analyzing these things.
2: Yeah. To your point about realism, after we had that conversation in the last podcast, I went back and did some research because I didn't feel good about my handle on that. That subject, and we talked about it. And I, I know that you've read a little bit of Phil Kelly. He's somebody for who anybody is interested in geopolitics would highly recommend some of Phil Kelly's work. And I came across um, which book it was in. It was either in his one about South America or in his kind of broader primer about geopolitics. But he actually addresses the question head on, and it was useful for me because he talked about how realism really thinks in terms of power and more in terms of zero sum, whereas geopolitics has meant a lot of different things to a lot of different people. But if you're just going to define it maximally, it's really just how geography affects international relations. And there is an approach and conception of power inside of realism that is really foreign to geopolitics. If you're just doing it from that kind of 30,000 foot, this is how this geography is going to impact this interest and and this, that, and the other thing. So but that that's the first thing I would say to that. The second thing I would say to that is that I was talking to a friend who might even be a listener, shout out to Lakey if you're listening. Who uh, We were talking just the other day about this, and he, he made a differentiation between prediction and forecasting, which I have found useful in my own work already, which is that when you predict something, you really are saying this thing is going to happen five years from now. Like I predict that this is totally made up and won't happen. But let's say I predict that Egypt will invade Tunisia. That's a prediction. If it happens, it's correct. If it doesn't happen, it's not correct forecasting is a little bit different. It's really about, okay, based on the information that we have now, based on how everything is right now, here is the projection for what is going to happen. And it may seem like a silly distinction, but I think it's an important distinction because things can change super quickly. Like we're going to talk a little bit now about some things that maybe we'll forecast or just thinking about the future, but I'm not going to sit here and tell you that the things that I forecast to happen five years from now, are absolutely going to for- are absolutely going to come to fruition. If all of the forces that I've identified are correct, and if those forces don't change, then yes, that is what I would expect to happen. But one thing that I think forecasting itself as a discipline can allow for, if you are willing to lean into the uncertainty of it, is to say, look, this is a projection based on a current spate of situation. Things can change. Uh, things are not deterministic. Things can be highly unpredictable. Things that are in people's control can change the factors there. And then that can create a whole new forecast. The real discipline of forecasting, I think, is actually every time you register a change in a current environment that is not what you expected, is to actually do the forecast over again. And it's in that situational awareness, if you develop an iterative process of constantly thinking through the implications of changes to hopefully a status quo that you've identified correctly, then you start getting a tool that I think not only allows you to peer into the future, but gives you a lot better situational awareness in the present.
1: Yeah, I like that distinction. And what what comes to mind when I think about projections as opposed to predictions, whereas prediction is maybe binary, an event happens versus a projection, which is this is sort of our best estimate of an uncertain future. I... I think of like the CBO, the Congressional Budget Office, just as an example, and you can do any sort of financial forecast. But you know, they they don't claim to have perfect insight into the future, but they sure do do their best, I think, in trying to understand you know trends in the budget, whether the deficit is going to grow, and there are it's it's not just a crapshoot. There are things that you can do to reduce uncertainty when you're looking at something like that. Like you know, mandatory spending is very hard to change, and there are certain types of expenditures baked in to future budgets and so you know there's going to be pressure on the discretionary bit which can be flexed a little bit more easily that sort of stuff and I think those are the those when we're looking at geopolitics when we're looking at how forces and geography influences human societies that's the sort of thing that you can identify like the mandatory spending of geopolitics because then you have some sort of idea of a force that you're going to have to reckon with and understand again. With the recognition that that may change, so I like that distinction. And the difficult thing there is, like you said, the situational awareness, because what that means is not only do you need to be like financial forecasts, familiar with the the historical precedent, which gives you some sort of status quo ante today from which you're basing your projections, but then as new information flows in, you have to be constantly reassessing that situational awareness, and that is extremely difficult to get. I think that you know, my reconsider brain believes very strongly that, you know, it is the news's responsibility to present information as best as possible, because I don't think the average uh, non-expert, I don't like the word average. Let me rephrase that. I don't think the non-expert should have to spend more than an hour hour a day being, you know, informing themselves on global affairs. But if you're trying to get that sense of what the big forces are and how they change, that really does require an incredibly more an incredible devotion of time, it just takes more investment to be able to reassess those sorts of things, right
2: yeah, and I, I wish Eric was here to bounce this off of him, but we'll just'll hopefully he'll I'll come on again when he's here, but I'll also say to your point, and I think this gets to the mission of what you guys do on reconsider is um i was I also just happened to be looking back at some old history of science stuff I was doing because I was trying to think about the future of technology, and I came across a, an Albert Einstein quote which Is basically the paraphrasing, it's something like whether you can observe something um, depends on the theory that you're using to think about it. The, the theory that you're using for observation actually defines what can be observed, and I think in some ways that's the hardest part of the status quo ante because all of us have different constructs, different narratives, different theories for how we think the world is working, and that will determine how you think something is going to go forward if you have. For instance, a forecast that China is going to collapse—you are going to read an increase in bad debt, or the inability of the Chinese government to respond to the coronavirus, or any of these other things—as signs that your forecast is going correctly. That's your theory. If you're like me, uh, and you think that China, the Chinese government's not going to collapse anytime soon, that China is still really a rising power, even if it has significant problems, that same data point becomes a mark of resilience oh, this bad thing happened, but just the fact that they were able to manage it, that shows me that my theory about China is true too. So it's just one of those those things where it's you need perfect ground truth. You also need perfect self-awareness to know, okay, well, what are my biases here and how am I inserting my own preconceptions that I might not even realize at the time into the things that I'm trying to predict?
1: I'll take it one step further and say that reality is defined by imperfection. How... How well can you actually know yourself? But is the process of striving to understand your own biases that I think results in the best possible outcome. Now, I, I kind of want to take this idea of using diff- different theories to view reality to actually drill down into some of the specifics of what we think might be going on in the world right now. Because if you think about foreign policy scholarship, a lot of the times they will use different models to interpret what's going on. And sometimes those different models result in different outputs. So realism might be, an analysis of pure power between different countries, what their security interests are, and you know so on and so forth. And that might result in one analytical output. But if you look at constructivism, which is this theory that there is a process through which national identity or subnational identity is constructed, and that has to do with the interplay between media and discourse analysis and all of that stuff, that can change how leaders perceive those interests and therefore how those countries go about pursuing those interests. So if you look at the case of India, and I'm jumping to India not entirely randomly here, clearly there are some security interest overlaps between India and the US. and A lot of them have to do with China. India went to war with China in 1962. They've generally been fearful of Chinese expansion ever since the PRC took power in the late 40s. At the same time, there is this process of constructing a national identity, which really in India has been going on since it achieved independence and arguably before that. But right now it's leaning more towards this, in certain ways, Hindu nationalism. And that's, you know, we can, it's a vague phrase, but there is more of that going on right now with the BGP in power and actually appealing to that Hindu identity more so than a shared Indian nationalism across Hindus and Muslims. And a lot of people in the U.S. may say, okay, that's concerning because that means that India, this country which we share a lot of values with in terms of democrat- shared democracy, cat, you know, they're an open market, they're not a centralized controlled economy, so on and so forth. And yet there is this disconcerting trend towards increasing marginalization of a large minority of the population. I think Muslims make up between 15 to 20% of you know India's 1.3 billion people. So how do we go about looking at that inner dynamic with, of Hindu nationalism with the outer dynamic of how India sits in the world vis-a-vis the US and China?
2: I mean, in some ways, India is the perfect pivot to this conversation, and you'll see why I say that in a second. I really only started doing very targeted, concentrated research in the last couple months on, on India, so I feel like I've been thinking about India a lot recently. And one of the things that I have learned about India, or at least the discourse that is out there about India, is that there really is not a clear sense of what's really going on. Or I should say, it's hard to get access to reliable information that you can trust about what's going on. I think in some ways, Indian society and Indian politics is similarly divided the way the United States is, not quite so starkly, but the differences and the disagreements have some of that same vitriol and have that inability of one side to see the other in them. Um, you talked about Hindu nationalism, the word for it is Hindutva and Hindu nationalism, as you kind of point out is really, it's, it's a messy term for, for it. It's the closest analog that is there, but Hindutva has been around for over a hundred years now. And I'm forgetting the name of the expert that said this, um, So I'm stealing from him. So I apologize to whoever that expert is. But I I read a great article just yesterday about this that talked about how Hindu nationalism really hasn't changed in the last hundred years. The same things that Hindu nationalist thinkers were talking about 100 years ago, they're still talking about today. What's changed is something something is going on in Indian society that has changed. And I've tried to put my finger on on what's changed. I, I can't say that I'm totally confident about it. But I think there is a lot more going on in India. Than this media narrative that the Hindu nationalists are cracking down on the Muslim religious minority. And that's what these anti CAA protests are. That's that bill that would change the way citizenship works in India and would kind of bar citizenship from uh, Muslims that were coming in. But anybody who is Buddhist or Jain or Sikh coming in, they could have this other stuff. Kashmir is another kind of lightning rod for it, the way that this current Indian government under Modi basically annexed Kashmir, got rid of their special status. That's really one of the only Muslim majority areas still ruled by India. And I think there's something more going on here. Uh, The the BJP and Modi in particular, one of the the reasons they have such broad-based appeal in India is because they have gone after the caste system, at least rhetorically. They definitely use the caste system and different inequalities within India from an electoral basis. But just listen to some of what Modi says or read some of his speeches. In his acceptance speech for 2019, he talks about how there should only be two castes in India anymore, the poor and those that are helping the poor to not be poor, period. And when you think about Indian society, I mean, castes go back thousands of years. Uh, The British come in and they use castes in order to govern India as as a colony. That heritage is still there as well. There's so much going on inside India. And who's to say that treating one minority or a caste minority one way versus a religious minority another way, who's to say what's right and what's not? I think in the way that you frame the question, and I'm, I'm not being super articulate here, but it was good the way you framed it, because I do think something is going on in India. There is at least, I don't even want to say that it's emerging quite yet, but there is a conversation happening about what it means to be Indian in the 21st century. And that I think is what is playing out. And you have radical fringes to that, the RSS, which is kind of this old parent organization of the BJP. Yeah, they do some really scary stuff. They do some stuff that kind of calls back to terrible parts of European history. Um, If you watch John Oliver, they just did an episode about Modi and the RSS and all that other stuff. But to your point also, Hindu nationalism is a broad camp, it is appealing to a lot of different things. And when nations emerge, when national identity emerges, it's never neat. It never happens cleanly. So I, I think that's part of what the conversation is going on there. But tell me if I was too rambly and, and inarticulate, in
1: No, not at all. And I think what your answer hints at is this broader idea of identity, not just national identity, is not always clear cut. Because, and India is really a great test case for this because there, has never really been an Indian national identity until fairly recently in history, because pre-independence, the the South Asian subcontinent that is now Pakistan and India and Bangladesh, was never united for a long period of time until the British came along. And you had some form you had some periods in the past. I think there's there are there several leaders in between like the tenth and thirteenth century that were able to sort of unite the country temporarily, but their dynasties didn't last more than a generation. And then it would dissolve back into the its constituent sub-states that were ruled by more local monarchs or similar figures. That changed when the British came, and it became more formalized after the British was there for maybe 100 years, I think. But post-1947 is the first time that the entire subcontinent has been united under a single administration that is uniquely its own so you have all of these competing ideas of what the in group and the out groups are this of identity are we nationally indian i think most indians that i talk to would say yes we we have a national identity at this point i feel indian but at the same po- time you have you have hindutva which is like an appeal to a hindu nationalism which is sort of a sub-nationalism within India, but is clearly the majority, competing with all of these different regional identities that still exist, even though they're less strong than they were maybe 100 years ago. So the process of constructing that identity, that national identity, if you can even have a national identity, is very messy. And I think you do have to go to what leaders are saying in part to understand how that process is playing out because it's the leaders ultimately that need to appeal to as broad a constituency as possible. So they're going to be very, very dialed in to what they think their constituents want to hear. So in that sense, what leaders say is a decent litmus test for what's going on in the minds of at least a lot of people in a country, clearly not everyone. So that's what's interesting to me about the question of identity in India. It's extraordinarily complex and you know there has been an independent india for the last 80 years but in a historical time frame 80 years isn't that long and i don't want to brush off and say it's an inconsequential amount of time because a lot has happened since then but like you said india does have a history of uh, how do i put this of of subjecting different people in society um it's not quite the same as what happened in the us with uh, with african slaves Uh, before the civil war. But if you look at how the caste system worked for a long time, you had this entire, it wasn't a caste. The untouchables was not a caste. It was below the four other castes. And they really were treated as sort of a forced labor. They were forced to do jobs that no one else wanted to do in society. They could be killed with basically no repercussions. And so that's also part of the cultural heritage of India. And I'm not saying that, you know, that's Present today, from what I understand, there's been a lot of affirmative action to try to offset some of those, um, some of that um, subjection that's occurred over time. But it's complicated, I guess, is what I'm saying. If you step back now and look at India as, as a unitary actor, as unitary as you can get, based on the conversation we've had, you know, why is India important in the 2020s? How do how do Indian leaders view China? How do Indian leaders view the U.S.?
0: Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST.
2: Yeah, there's a great OECD report. I can maybe share a link of it with you, uh, put in the description of this. But So they do this study where they go back literally 2,000 years, and they try to account for share of global GDP of countries going back 2,000 years. now. Obviously, that's imperfect because the British Empire doesn't exist 2,000 years ago, right? So there's some, there's, some sh- there's some wiggle room here. But for going back to about 1,000, the the data actually works pretty well. And for most of the last 1,000 years, India and China are basically either, they trade off places between the first and second largest economy in the world. And India loses that place as one of the world's two largest economies really because they meet the British Empire at the exact wrong time. Um, Their imperial construct, which was a Muslim empire, the Mughal Empire, is starting to come apart. They have lagged in terms of technology and in terms of overall societal organization. And the British come in, and they are able, because of how divided India is, because of how technologically backward it is, not just to conquer it, but basically to use India's resources to fuel the British Empire for another hundred years. If the British had not been able to take advantage of India, I doubt that we would remember uh, the British Empire as basically dominating the geopolitics of the 19th century. If you look at the data, there's this interesting switch where basically the GDP that India or the share of global GDP that India starts to lose goes directly to the British Empire. And that maintains their rise for a long time. So we're dealing here with a country that is going to be the most populous country in the world. Within a couple of years, I don't think it's passed China yet. Has it? It might have already passed, for all I know. But it's it's either one or two um, economy wise. Just in the last week, the I uh, there was a report just I think a couple months ago, or even even last week, where the IMF said that India was now the fifth largest economy in the world. So they leapfrogged both the United Kingdom and France, which seems kind of poetic in a way. And I've seen projections that say it'll be the largest economy in the world, larger even than China by 2030. So just on that level. That's why it's important. Um, Geopolitically, why it's important, and a lot of this depends on how Indians decide these questions of national identity for themselves. In the past, India has not been able to affect, to be an active or assertive player in global geopolitics, in part because it has been so internally focused. And I would expect that to be true in the future. But if you had the emergence of some kind of cohesive national identity in India, I think that would begin to change. And it just so happens to be changing around the exact same time that the other two major powers in the world, which is the United States and China, have basically identified each other as strategic rivals. So India has all these problems internally, and we can talk about some of them if you want. But if India can solve some of those problems, and if it can organize its government and organize its principle, excuse me, organize its people around some kind of organizing principle, you could see a world in which the United States and China are basically facing off against each other, and everybody is just competing to be India's best friend. And I think that's kind of how Indian foreign policy decision makers see the world working. For all the news about how Modi and Trump love each other, and Modi came here to Texas and had a party with Trump, and Trump was just in India, and we all saw the, the PR that came from that. India really doesn't want to be aligned with anyone. They want basically. To be equal to some of these other powers and to have what they have been denied now for hundreds of years because of that Western interventionism, which is a sovereign state of their own and to have control over their own destiny. And if India is able to do that, um, just by virtue of its economic influence, it's going to affect the world. And if India starts projecting power outward, well, suddenly you have a major military there in the Indian Ocean that wasn't there before, that has interests in the Middle East, especially for Middle Eastern oil, that it couldn't assert before. Uh, which will have, you know, dependence on global trade routes that it didn't have before. So when you start to to sort of play those things out over a 10 to 20 year horizon, India, if it can get there, obviously is poised to play a huge role in the world, a much bigger role than it has played in the past.
1: And how about India's relation with Russia? Because something that a lot of folks may not know is that, you know, the U.S. has not always been close with India during the Cold War India was actually far more of an adversary to the U.S. The U.S. was allied with Pakistan. Pakistan and India were adversaries all throughout the 20th and still the 21st century. And the Soviet Union or India was very close to the Soviet Union. And India still gets a lot of its arms from Russia. And the U.S. has made a fair amount of exceptions in terms of arm purchases, sanctions against Russian arm purchases to India because India is becoming a a close ally kind of and based on what you just said they may not really like that term but how do you look at that relationship
2: yeah i mean I, I would say that india wasn't really close to anyone during most of the cold war they were one of the few countries that were able to kind of stay non-aligned but in general i mean russia doesn't affect india that much certainly it did back in the day when the british empire and the russians were competing in central asia the so-called great game because that was the path in order to get to india and to get to india's riches but India is too powerful for all that now. Um, the real shift, I think, in India-U.S. relations, and this actually gets to some of the stuff we were talking about before about um, the Muslim minority in India and some of these changes in both Kashmir and to citizenship laws, is t- 2001 really changed things. You know, September 11th was an Islamist terrorist attack against the United States, but India's had its fair share of Islamist terrorism too. Think about Mumbai. Think about some of the other things that have happened recently. And where was Osama bin Laden found hiding? He was found in Pakistan. Pakistan was supposed to be the U.S. ally, but has been this sort of mortal enemy for India uh, since forty-seven, since nineteen forty-seven, and since partition. So there is this sense between the United States and China that they have to fight um, Islamist radicalization. I would throw in there that China feels the same way. They've got the Uyghurs in Xinjiang, and they have used Xinjiang as their sort of justification for all the things they're doing there is that they are worried about Islamist radicalization so you've got these three powers on some levels who are probably rivals or competitors at the geopolitical level who all have this opinion about Islam but yeah I, I don't see India becoming an ally of anyone really India's power potential is such that it doesn't need to be an ally of anyone else it needs to get its own allies uh, I think if, if I'm right about India kind of coming around and this Modi government being a symptom of more effective Indian governments to come, I think you're going to see India look for its own allies, look to invest in places just outside the subcontinent that it's going to use in order to fuel its own rise. What India is not going to do, it is not going to play the role for the United States that it was forced to play for the British Empire. And I don't think U.S. foreign policymakers have woken up to that quite yet, especially in this administration. I think they think just because Trump and Modi like each other and shook hands that everything's going to be fine. But one of the things that has eluded the Trump administration for months now, since Modi's visit uh, to Houston a couple months ago, is there's still no trade deal forthcoming between India and the United States. India is not just going to open up its economy for the United States and help the United States get through its own period of overextension and debt the way that the British forced India to do that as well. So um yeah on a lot of different levels India is interesting in terms of specifically how they deal with russia they'll deal with them how they deal with anyone else they want to be non-aligned but for india russia's not that big of a player it's it's really china that's going to loom large and to a certain extent the united states as well
1: so now we've kind of talked a little about, bit about indian identity and we've looked through that model that prism i now want to try to look through india from another model another prism which is more geographical. And this is going to kind of come to you as a two-part question. So if this is too convoluted, let me know. But you mentioned the incarceration of the Uyghurs. And I've I've heard from some close China watchers that it may even be going beyond that. There may be killings that are starting to happen. I mean, it's really a god-awful situation. I read recently that in addition to what's going on in Xinjiang, China has begun funding a lot of uh, basically surveillance networks in Central Asian countries. So Kyr- Kyrgyzstan, for example, received well—not just funding, but China actually built out one of their like local monitoring systems for one of their big cities and supplied a lot of technology and systems that allow them to surveil the. I, th- I think is the capital, but I'm not sure. I'd have to go back and look at it. So you know. You and I have gone back and forth on the Belt and Road Initiative and competition in Central Asia, and I think your point about the Great Game in the 19th century is actually extremely relevant to today because so much of when Great Britain chose to intervene in wars in the 19th century was depend- dependent upon whether or not India was threatened. So when Russia looked like it was going to you know, move south through the Balkans in the Crimean War, Great Britain got, got involved. Then in the 1877-78 Russo-Turkish War, Great Britain kind of backed off because the Suez Canal had been built, but then it looked like the Ottoman Empire was going to collapse. Great Britain got involved again to protect uh, Russia from getting too close to Central Asia and therefore India. And then the Great Game continued sort of with the second Afghan war after that, so on and so forth. But sorry, I'm, I'm going off on a historical tangent here. But the idea is Central Asian competition still matters today. China is giving these... Central Asian government has the ability to surveil its people, but that information is almost certainly being carried back to China. What consequences will that have?
2: That's a difficult question to answer. As you kind of point out, if the Belt and Road Initiative is going to work, and China wants it to work because it wants to tie Eurasia to China, with China sort of at the center of it, a lot of Belt and Road initiatives are going to have to go through Muslim lands. Now, Central Asia is ruled by mostly secular dictators, even if the majority of the populations are Muslim, but even those countries are a little bit uncomfortable with what's going on in Xinjiang. But I guess the point I would make to you is there's really no political force in the Muslim world that is going to make China pay for that either. Uh, Pakistan is basically a Chinese ally at this point, is desperate for all the investment and attention that China has been giving it in recent years. Turkey, which is kind of presenting itself as maybe the future leader of the Muslim world, has basically looked away from the weaker,s uh, hasn't caused China much of a problem at all there, uh, and I think in general there is a real fracturing of political leadership in the Islamic world. Now, this is not an, apolo- an, uh, an apology. Uh, this is not an apology for the Islamic State or anything, but one of the reasons the Islamic State is so attractive, I think, to young disillusioned youth is because it imagines a time when Muslims did have unified political power and where, when, you know, a caliph or whoever else could wield that political power, things were better for Muslims. When you look at different Muslim minorities all across Eurasia and even into North Africa, uh, things aren't looking good for them and they're looking worse for them because you have this radical fringe that has created such an outsized impact on the way people view Muslims throughout the world. Saying all that to say, uh, look, I, I don't see huge consequences for China. China is not used to going out and being assertive. I think they're going to have to learn a little bit better um, how they're going to use their economic power to integrate people, not necessarily into any kind of empire, but into an overall economic structure where China gets to be at the center of it. Um, they are having growing pains for sure right now in Kyrgyzstan, Kazakhstan, and the things that they are doing to the Uyghurs in Xinjiang are going to cause them more growing pains, but. Look, at the end of the day, follow the money. The Chinese have the money. Uh, They are the ones who have the geopolitical interest in doing so. They are going to be filling some of these gaps. And that makes Russia nervous. It especially makes the European Union nervous. And I think in some ways, the European Union is the most interesting actor to watch here because they've kind of woken up to it. They are starting to prioritize their relationship with Central Asian states. But the sort of end conclusion that I would have there is that it's not going to be as violent as the great game, and it's not really going to be about access to India itself, which is really what the great game was about. It's more kind of that classic but kinder, who's going to control the heartland? And China really wants to control the heartland so that it can build a continental Eurasian entity where the Chinese market dominates. And You've got all these other powers who are going to be working against that, especially the European Union, especially Russia. What Turkey's gonna do, I don't know. This this the the issue of the Uyghurs in Xinjiang, I think, is gonna cause problems for Turkey down the road, but it's not quite there yet. And for now they have the Israeli-Palestinian issue to make a big deal of.
1: So here's the second part of my convoluted question about geography. We've kind of talked about how Central Asia relates to China and China's involvement there. Now, coming back to India and China, the two have gone to war, as I mentioned, in nineteen sixty-two, but it was a fairly limited conflict. I think it lasted about three weeks maybe 1200 people died on the Indian side. So it wasn't nothing. But the challenge with direct conflict between India and China is, is, as you know, the Himalayas. And we've, we've definitely gone back and forth at length about how geography can or cannot impede that sort of conflict. But if you go back even further than that, to all of these invasions that I mentioned in medieval times, they all came from Central Asia. And then if you go back even further to Alexander, he came in through Central Asia because there's... There's a pass in northwestern India. I think it's along the the, uh, Ganges River, but I'd have to double check, through which basically all invasions of India have occurred. And India is involved in Afghanistan. Great Britain was worried about Russia getting into Afghanistan because it could have access to India. Now, if China gains greater access to Central Asia, will India be looking at China's um, presence further west and potentially even down into Afghanistan, where India is becoming more and more active as a potential risk because it will be threatened on its west through these passes that are actually penetrable as opposed to along the Himalayas.
2: I'm not sure Central Asia matters as much for India as it does for China and that India would be particularly worried about that. I I think they would be worried about the character of Chinese support for Pakistan and what that would mean about Pakistan's behavior. I could see a world in which China being able to control Pakistan's behavior is actually good from India's perspective, but whether China would be willing to exert that influence, whether it would use that as a bargaining chip, I think that would make them nervous. The other area, though, is, and each side has an area, uh, for India, it can mess around in Tibet. And from China's perspective, it can mess around in Nepal, and that's sort of one of the areas where they get to square off. But again, we're talking about very limited spaces. I think, in general, China is really not interested in fighting a contest with India any more than India is interested in fighting a contest with China. I think what you're going to see emerge is probably more like spheres of influence. And I think Central Asia probably will fall under more of the Chinese sphere of influence when we get down to it. But I think they're going to be able to respect each other as powers because they're not going to be competing at the level that, say, China and the United States are, where there are really mutually exclusive visions of what the world order should look like. Now, that said, the place that I see the most potential for competition and conflict between China and India is actually not in India, not in China. It has to do with securing trade routes to the Middle East and to Africa. Both China and India, for different reasons, are increasingly dependent on imports of raw materials from abroad. So things like oil, things like even food and water, uh, cobalt, any of the things that you kind of need for a modern industrial economy as well. Both China and India are importing increasingly large amounts of those things. And if you have a world where the United States is kind of turning more inward and where the United States Navy is not going to be running around policing everything, that kind of requires you, if you're going to go out and get that stuff, to have some kind of security guarantee. And so I think that's why you see India is spending so much time thinking about its navy, thinking about the Indo-Pacific, thinking about its projection capabilities there. And that's exactly what China, I think, is building towards in the long term as well. I think if you are thinking 20, 30 years out, if India and China are able to emerge, and they both have lots of domestic issues that could prevent them from even getting to this point, but if India and China are able to continue on the paths that they're on right now, the place that they're going to be competing is in places like the Middle East, places like Africa for control of trade routes or for control of uh, political and economic relationships that allow them cheaper access to oil or to some of the other things they need. But that said, if, if they can create some kind of understanding of spheres of influence and not create the sort of mutually exclusive worldview that the United States is locked in with, with China right now, maybe there is room for cooperation. Maybe there is room for them to say that we both have these interests, but that's I mean, it's it's further down the road, but that's where I would be worried about things. Um, I I don't, I mean, there's a lot of grandstanding between China and India, but I would highly doubt that decision makers on either side think that they're going to be able to fight a war to conquer or even neutralize the other. It's just not that kind of relationship.
1: Sure. Let's, Let's take a hard turn east now and come to the US because clearly we're a powerful country, et cetera, et cetera. But it's it, it's hard to ignore where we stand in the presidential election. I think not necessarily because of, you know, what candidates say in the debates, but more about what the nature of the primary process so far ha- kind of demonstrates where we are more broadly as a country. Now, I, we're recording this episode after the, um debate last night on uh, February 25th. I forget where it was, but I, I shot some tweets out. And um, if you want to follow me at Xander Snyder X, that were, were basically harsh criticisms of CBS, which is the network hosting it. Because if you watch these debates, it's just they're, they're structured to encourage candidates to yell at each other and talk over each other, talk over their time limits. And unless you are as aggressive as possible, there's no guarantee that the moderators are going to give you your due time. It's, it's basically the worst structure for a debate you could possibly imagine. Now, I'll get off my high horse there for a second. But what, what can we take from where we stand in the election cycle right now in a broader sense? Is there anything meaningful to these, either these debates or these conversations besides you know this is pure spectacle?
2: Well, to be perfectly honest, I don't watch the debates. I, I really can't stand them, although that probably says something more about me than anyone else. But look, we're talking about kind of what's going to happen in the 2020s and in the future. And I think the United States is a good example of this. I've been trying to put my finger on maybe what the one theme in the world is here. And I think my theme, and I, I'm, I'm still not 100% sold on this, is that people don't seem to realize how good they have it. And that's true in just about every country in the world. I think it's especially true in the United States. There is a feeling. Of angst, of decline, um, which I think is brought on by feelings—or not even feelings—by realities of wealth inequality and all these other things. But if you look at the world by just about any objective metric, things are going okay. People are coming out of poverty, wages are going up, literacy rates are at all-time highs. Uh, until this coronavirus stuff, stock market was doing great. If you had money in the market, you were doing great. And yet, people feel, on some level, that things are not good. And they feel like something needs to change. In the United States, the way I have understood this, and you might have heard me say this before, Xander, but I've been calling this America's Victorian era. And I've been comparing it to sort of the era, sort of the 50, 100 years before the British Empire had to go into World War I and really began its secular decline. I also compare it to where the United States was at during the Gilded Age, which is that period right after the Civil War, where you've got the robber barons running around and the Rockefellers, and the Carnegies, and Standard Oil, and railroads, and also the 1920s, uh, where you had this huge government deregulation after World War I, which led to rampant speculation on the stock market, Gatsby, and alcohol, and prohibition, all this other stuff. And then it all comes crashing down in the Great Depression. And I bring those three things up because I think they're all interconnected. And I think that's what's going on in the United States right now. And I think we're just at the very beginning. Things are really not that bad in the United States. Now, United States debt level government spending is unsustainable. And at a certain point, that bug is going to hit the windshield. But the United States economy is so huge, so wealthy that there's actually a lot more room to go. If you told me the United States kept on this growth train for another five to six years, wouldn't surprise me at all. Oh, if you told me that the stock market, you know, collapsed in six months, that wouldn't surprise me either. We're dealing with some historically unprecedented, ter- uh, historically unprecedented territory when it comes to monetary policy and debt. But let's not go down that rabbit hole. My point is this. In the same way that after the Gilded Age, you had basically the progressive transformation where you had President Teddy Roosevelt come in, you had the United States become a Pacific power, took over the Philippines. Um, speak softly, carry a big stick, you've got progressive changes all over the United States in terms of the workday, this, that, and the other thing. That was one transformation, and it was brought on by that kind of crisis that the Gilded Age created. The same way the 1920s led inevitably to Franklin Delano Roosevelt, to the New Deal, to all the changes that radically changed the relationship between Americans and their governments in the 1930s, all that happened because of what happened in the 1920s. I think the United States is setting itself up for that kind of transformation soon, and I think all this stuff that we're seeing in the debates, and not even just in the debates, where the the typical traditional positions of the political parties don't make sense anymore. You've got a socialist who's going to who is right now the front runner for the Democratic Party. I don't know what that makes Donald Trump. This guy is using government you know money to bail out farmers and to run a $1 trillion deficit and cut taxes and invest more money in the military than the United States military needs in order to maintain supremacy. I guess it's just socialism with different priorities. They both seem to be fiscally irresponsible figures who who think the government can actually fix different problems. They just disagree about the problems. the the political categories don't don't seem to matter anymore. And that to me reflects that there is this break, there is this disjuncture between what the parties represent, who the leaders of the parties are, and what the people want. And I think on some level, the people don't even know what they want. They just know that things don't feel very good. And they are looking for authenticity for somebody who makes them feel like somebody is seeing them and seeing their problem. That's why I think it's kind of like that gilded age thing. It's kind of that Roaring Twenties thing—it's kind of that Belle Epoch in in, uh, in Paris in 1890s before World War One. It's this period that maybe people will romanticize when they look back on it 50 years from now because they'll say, "Oh, look, they had it so well." But in the moment, everybody was kind of on edge. Everybody was uncomfortable. Everybody felt completely misunderstood. I think that based on the, how the world is going to go and how some of these, these things have to shake out, I think we'll actually look back on now is or the good times, because we're going to have some major transformations that are going to be painful for lots of sector of society going forward.
1: Yeah, I think when people express to me their deep cynicism, one of the more recent examples that I point back towards is just sort of a point of comparison is the late 60s. It was really a, a, a scary time. I wasn't alive then, clearly. But, you know, sometimes anecdotes can can reveal Qualitative aspects about a time that the statistics struggle to convey. Although I, I do believe in the power of statistics, and my dad always relates to me. He he went to UC Berkeley for two years. He in, he ended up transferring, but he he was there in 1968. And he said he remembers going down. He lived on the second floor apartment to the street level, and there's a national guardsman with an M16 swung over a shoulder stationed at every corner. He remembers a day when. Three hundred or so, he claims, National Guardsmen linked arms and walked from one end of campus to the other and broke everyone's bones who got in the way. And it seemed like the country really was on the verge of a revolution. And part of the reason was, you know, a war that people didn't believe in, but taking people against their will to go fight in that on a scale that's really incomparable today. And in in that sense, I sometimes describe myself as a closet optimist. I've done it on the show before, where I do think that there are real problems right now that we need to work on. And certainly just the fact that reconsider exists, you know, is a demonstration that I believe that the divisive political rhetoric that's been prevailing in American politics over the last five to 10 years is a serious problem. But I I do think that on some deeper levels, we are doing better than at a lot of times in the past. And the, the reason I like making that point, and maybe it's one of the reasons you like making this point too, is to put things in perspective so that we don't overreact to something that may not be quite as bad as it seems just because we're living in the moment, because whatever we're experiencing right now clearly is more present than things that people in the past experienced that we never went through. Yeah, that's the end of my thought, period.
2: No, but it goes back to being an anti determinist as well. I mean, so we can change these things if we want to. Like, nothing here is written in stone, everything can change. I agree with you that things are probably better than people appreciate. I also think things are going to get a lot worse. And then just to top it all off, I also think the United States has the institutional resilience and the popular imagination to get through this phase. Now, what damage we're going to do to our country and to our standing in the world as we get through this period, that I'm a little bit more nervous about. I think the United States is going to be very self-involved, very self-absorbed over the course of the next at least five to 10 years for however long it takes us to get through some of these systemic and structural issues that have to come. And by the time the United States gets through that period and has a stronger sense of itself and more confidence in itself, the world's going to look a lot different. That liberal international order that was built by, in part, by the United States after World War II, I don't know that that's going to be there in 10 years' time, in part because the U.S. is undermining it by sort of putting America first in this very short-term way in almost all of its relationships. When I was back working at GPF, you can even see it in writing, I talked about how we weren't in a multipolar world, we were still in a unipolar world. That's a fancy, pretentious way of saying there weren't lots of different regional powers in the world. There was just one global superpower, the United States. A, I'm beginning to think that's not so true anymore, and B, I certainly don't think it'll be true by the end of the next decade. I think by the time the United States kind of wakes up and deals with some of these internal arguments that we're having rather impolitely with ourselves if these debates and tweets and everything are any indication, it's going to be a very, very different world. I think it's going to be a world with different spheres of influence, and the United States is going to have to kind of reposition itself and think, okay, well, the United States is not the global superpower. It is not the force for democratic idealism and liberalism that it was thought, that it, thought it was going to be. It's going to have to engage with other powers in a much more pragmatic way. And ironically, the person who saw all this happening uh, he was just a little bit early on calling it was Richard Nixon. Nixon was talking about this in 1970 and 1971, where he imagined a multipolar world where the United States, along with Western Europe, Japan, China, the Soviet Union, would just be one of a number of powers, and that the United States could carve out a good place for itself in that world. And that might actually be a force for good. Uh but the United States doesn't think that way right now. Since nineteen ninety one, the United States has this vision of itself as oh. United States vanquished the Soviet Union. Oh, the United States is the liberal vanguard. It has to be the light that points the way to all the different nations. And that's just not how how it's going to be. And I think going forward, the United States is going to have to downgrade its expectations of its foreign policy. It's going to have to define things in much narrower terms, not even necessarily because it wants to, but because it's not really going to have a choice.
1: Yeah, I mean this could be a whole other conversation, but your your point about sort of looking at the world in black and white terms, I think is a very American way of, of approaching foreign policy and it's part of our cultural cultural heritage, I think. And the paradoxical part of it is that part of the reason that we've been so successful, I think up to this point, if you look at the last 200 years of American history, is in part what's going to make it extraordinarily difficult to adapt to what's coming. Because, you know, we really didn't get involved in the world because we were, well, one, we had big oceans on both sides of us and we can avoid it. But two, we we only started to really when we had, from a security perspective, secured both coasts. We were pretty much safe at home. And, you know, of, of course, I'm not getting into the fact that that entire process revolved in massacres of lots of people who already lived here. But we then only really started to intervene more in the world starting sort of the late 19th century and then World War I, World War II, when we were able to frame things in these existentialist terms that kind of made sense at the time. I mean, certainly in World War II, it's a little bit more ambiguous in World War I, but if Germany had taken over the continent, you could argue if you're in America in 1916 that that could potentially pose a threat with all of the uh, U-boat action that had been taking place on merchant vessels and all that. But it's that very black and white mindset of, you know, America goes to war to preserve good in the world. And I, I don't think that that's comes from a place of hypocrisy, even if it e- ends up resulting in hypocritical actions at times. I, I do think that a lot of people in the U.S. believe that America's a force for good and we need to use our power to for good things. The flip side of that is if you know, you're applying force to do good, but you're not willing to apply the amount of force to achieve the objective that you claim, then you could just end up making the situation bad. And it's that inflexibility that's built into the idea of America does not go abroad hunting monsters that's going to be really difficult to change. It's hard to change a national identity's mindset. And I guess now we're kind of wrapping back up to the beginning of the conversation.
2: Well, I would just I would just I would just add on there, Xander, before you close it out, which it also kind of takes us back to the India thing because I don't think this is a uniquely American thing. Go look on YouTube at the John Oliver episode on Modi, or just go on Twitter and kind of Google things about Modi, and you will find uh different sides of the political question in India going, Modi is evil, Modi is a fascist, Modi is terrible, the BJP is awful, this is terrible, democracy is dying in India. Then you'll also see people on the other side who are saying Modi is everything. This is liberalism. This is, what it, this is what democracy looks like. Get rid of these people, these Islamists, these terrorists, all these other things. And the thing that we'll be missing is a middle voice. It, the thing that is missing in most political discourse these days, and I can't quite explain why. I don't know if this is because of social media or because of the way we communicate or because uh, people just don't read history anymore. They just read the first item that comes up on their Google search. But we don't talk anymore about how things like identity, like politics, are really, really complicated. And they aren't a monolith. There is evil in the world. I'm not saying there isn't evil in the world. Adolf Hitler, definitely evil. (laughs) You know, like if if we can't say certain things are evil, there's going to be no thing. But most of the time, things are not black or white. They are gray. And the only way we're going to get anywhere is by sort of being able to lay out in intelligent conversation. Here is what I think. Here is what you think, both based on what we know is there some way that we can educate each other? Is there some way that we can come to a compromise? Can we be pragmatic? Can we figure out a way that both of us get the most of what we want without trampling on whatever principles are most important to us? That conversation doesn't happen anymore. And it doesn't only not happen between different political viewpoints, whether you're you know, BJP or NDA or Modi or anti-Modi or, or Democrat or Republican. It doesn't even happen within the same groups. Look at the Democratic debate. There is no no unified sense that anybody is there to help each other at all. Uh, I saw this from a friend named David Judson, and I saw this in a New York Times article. Can you imagine if the Democrats stopped squabbling with each other over who was going to be number one on the ticket and just presented themselves as a team of people who were going to try and replace the Trump administration? Like, Stop arguing about this number one thing, and you're a socialist, and you're a sexist, and you're this, and you're that, and all this other thing, and just say, you know what, Like this slate of candidates it's actually great. Let's make Andrew Yang, uh, Secretary of Labor, and let's make Liz Warren, the, the ch- Chairman of the Federal Reserve. And, you know, uh, Mayor Pete can be Secretary of State, you know, th- there's actually a lot of political talent there and a lot of desire to do good. But like you said, um, whether it's because of the way people want to consume things, or the way media sets up how the contest is going to happen, everything is a fight, everything is black or white, good or evil. And that's just not how it works. And the more we're going to have those conversations and the more those conversations dominate, the more I think we're just going to continue to self-create this prophecy where things get worse. And we actually do get into the type of situation that we were in in the 1960s, or we do get into the type of situation where we were in in the late 1920s, where we are in a kind of prison of our own making that we could have gotten out of if we had just gotten our heads out of our own butts and talked to each other.
1: I'll I'll just add one final thought, and then we'll close out to that. You you mentioned that, that that sort of conversation doesn't happen anymore. I'll take one small issue because it does happen here on Reconsider. That yes, yes, it happens with us. But you know. it, well, I I think the the way you laid out sort of that that part of the last statement that you made really is the ethos of of this show, and I do think that you write from that perspective as well and why I enjoy reading your writing so much. Clearly, I'm biased. But if more people wanted to find you, either on Twitter or however else, how could they find what you're producing right now today?
2: Yeah, um, so you can find me on Twitter at Jacob Shap. You can find me on LinkedIn under Jacob Shapiro. Um, I've been working on a lot of stuff. I've kind of gone underground since I left GPF, but I'm going to be coming up for some air for some air soon. But if you want to find me, uh, Twitter's probably the best way to write the second, and hopefully I'll come out soon. And And also... Just to, to dovetail on what you just said and kind of what I was talking about at the end there, uh, I'm still learning quite a bit about India. I'm sure there are Indian listeners who are going to have opinions about some of the things that we talked about. Please come tell me what I was wrong about, what you think I was right about, what you think I should read. Uh, I don't pretend to be an expert at all of this stuff. And I know that this, that this stuff is very controversial. I would just ask uh, that you come at me with the ethos, with the ethos of, of Xander's podcast, which is that, look, we're here to learn from each other. We're here to talk to each other. And here to get a better sense of what's going on in the world so that maybe in each of our small respective ways, we can bend that arc of the moral universe towards something better. Um, So, yeah, I'm I'm very open to to being corrected and learning new things. And like you said, Xander, that's one of the reasons I like coming on here so much, because both you and Eric have built up a space that preserves exactly the type of thing that I think not just we need in the United States, but that we need in the general media ecosystem in general. And for the people who are listening and who have made it far in this in this podcast, it, it may seem like a small thing, but just the fact that you're here, the fact that you are listening, that you are willing to talk to people who think about this stuff seriously and are also open to being wrong, that's also all part of making this better and of getting away from that sort of deterministic, the crisis is, inevit- is inevitable. I think it's not inevitable if we can push back against
1: it. So everyone, be sure to check out Jacob uh, Jacob Shapiro on Twitter. He also writes on LinkedIn. Keep your eyes out for what he's doing next. And when it comes, we'll be sure to mention it on this show. Be sure to follow reconsider at reconsider pod on Twitter and Facebook. You can follow me at XanderSnyderX on Twitter. And if you enjoy the show, please do consider donating a buck or two on Patreon. It's how we invest in marketing and get the reconsider message out to more people. You can find that at Patreon slash reconsider that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash reconsider jacob thanks for coming on again cheers
2: flexibility is great that's why there's yoga flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too that's why there's united healthcare insurance plans